Today's scripture comes from Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are a father. We are the clay, and you are a potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? When God sees... Silent. Everybody's been there. Some of you maybe are there right now, struggling with that very felt emotion. But God seems silent. Maybe you feel stuck in that place. And don't quite know how to process it. Wilbur Reese was a pastor for many years. He offered the following thought on revival. What revives the soul when you feel like God is silent and gone? He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Now that's somewhat of a humorous quote, but it's also tragically on point, I think in many cases. That when God seems silent, we want him, but do we really want God? Do we really want all of him? It's the place where God's people found themselves here in Isaiah chapter 64. They were stuck. They were stuck. And God seemed silent. God seemed removed. God seemed very distant. God didn't seem engaged with where they were at. And we understand that with the history of the context of Isaiah. 
of them going into exile and being brought back and that journey that they went on. But this is actually one prayer that begins in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15, and it ends in Isaiah 64, verse 12. It's one prayer, and it starts and it ends in exactly the same place. Isaiah 63, 15. Where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your, compa your compassion are held back from me? That's the beginning of the prayer. And then it ends in verse 12, chapter 64. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? That phrase held back in verse 15 and the phrase restrain yourself in verse 12 are the same exact word in the Hebrew. This is one prayer that starts and ends in the same place, and that is in the place of God, you are silent. You're holding yourself back. You seem to be restraining yourself. We need revival. We feel stuck. And what's beautiful is between the beginning and the end of this prayer, there is this beautiful prayer on revival. What brings revival when God seems silent? What revives the soul when you functionally feel dead to God? First, it's confession of sin. This passage is covered with a number of descriptions of sin. And all of these descriptions of sin in this prayer bring us to the same crucial understanding of what sin is and where it leaves us. There's three snapshots of sin in this prayer. And the first is in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Now this is not Isaiah laying the blame on God for hard-heartedness. Now, this is consistent with Old Testament thought that their, their guilt was of such proportions that God passed on them the sentence of them being given over to the consequences of their sin. So this is describing a hardness of heart that comes through that comes through the consequences of sin, of God just giving you over to the consequences of your sin, and that brings this hardness. A heart that's set on disobedience progressively gets harder and harder to the ways and to the will of God, to the point where it's humanly unretrievable. In other words, there is no rescue strategy, humanly speaking, that will soften a hardened heart. That's what Isaiah is getting at here. So it's it's leaving the center at the center at a place of I can't rescue myself out of this hardness of heart. Second snapshot, Isaiah sixty four verse five. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? Now, Isaiah is not explaining here divine wrath. 
Because if he was, the verbs would have to be reversed. It would have to be, we sinned, and God, you got angry. That's not what's said here. No, this is describing a pretty aggravated offense. It's describing sin that basically flies in the face of God. It's describing Israel sinning, knowing that it would enrage God. Uh, if you have children, think about uh, when a, a son uh, disobeys his father, and the father gets visibly frustrated at the son's disobedience, and the son responds by doing that same disobedience again and smiles at dad as he does it, right? provoking, getting great joy out of ruffling dad's feathers and getting dad worked up. Now you say, well, wait, how, do we, how do we do that with God? Well, what Isaiah is talking about here is deliberate sin. Meaning that you're faced with the choice of honoring and obeying God or gratifying the desires of your flesh. And faced with that clear decision, you choose to satisfy the desires of your flesh. That would be deliberate sin. And what Isaiah says is, is there salvation in that case? When it's deliberate, when it's offensive, when it's persistent, can that be met with salvation? Is there a rescue possible when it's deliberate? Third snapshot of sin, Isaiah 64, verses 6 to 7. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name. If the first two snapshots get at hardness of heart and deliberate sin that leave us helpless and unable to rescue ourselves, this third snapshot gets at the ways that we attempt to rescue ourselves and fail at doing so. It's the, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Polluted garment there means a garment of menstruation. And you say, well, how, how can righteous deeds be a polluted garment? Well, they can only be polluted if the motivation behind the behavior is polluted. What Isaiah is getting here is getting at is righteous behaviors, but the motivation behind it is to assuage God's wrath or to benefit self. It would be like you uh, giving a gift to your boss so that he'll give you time off when you request it next. Right? In that case, you're not really giving a gift to your boss. You're giving a gift to yourself. Right? And this reveals really the heart of sin, which is this rugged, rugged commitment to self. This rugged self-absorption. When God seems silent, revival begins with confession of sin. 18th century pastor Jonathan Edwards is well known for his famous sermon called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what's interesting is 
there were sermons in that day, the kind of the, the current style of sermons in that day involved um, preachers that would uh, preach a message to convicted criminals that were just about to be executed. And so preachers would, would, would preach and speak to these convicted criminals to say, listen, you're about to be face to face with God. And so you need to confess your sin and repent and turn to God. Right? That was a very common style of sermon in the day when, when they were being spoken to convicted criminals. What was shocking is that Jonathan Edwards used that style to preach toward respectable uh, church people. And when he did so in Enfield, he preached this sermon to a, a group of what would be respectable church people. He basically told them that their, their sin was just as grievous as the convicted criminal. He said, you're in a very unstable place with God because only he's withholding death and judgment from you. And you need to, to repent and turn from your sin. And so he preached this, this very um, offensive sermon to respectable church people in Enfield. And there was this amazing response. But as he preached this sermon, people began to groan and moan. And there were shrieks. And there were screams. And there was weeping. As they became convicted of their sin and as they confessed it, it turned into weeping of joy as they repented and found the grace of God. It was amazing. But here's what's interesting. Jonathan Edwards preached that exact same sermon, almost identical. They had the manuscripts of both. Preached that identical sermon two weeks earlier to his own congregation in Northampton. And their response was a shake of his hand, fine sermon, Pastor. And then they went home and got lunch. Now, that story reveals the ultimate source of revival, which is that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the same sermon, two different places, two different, drastically different responses. That's a work of the Spirit, but it also reveals the means by which or through which the Holy Spirit brings revival. And that is word-driven conviction of sin and confession of sin. That that's where revival starts. When God seems silent, revival starts with confession of sin, but it doesn't stop there. Goes on the confession of God's character. Look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. On the heels of confession in verses 6 and 7 comes this confession of God's character in verse 8. You say, why is it so important that these two are sandwiched together? Confession of sin, confession of God's character. Well, think about a relationship that you have with a friend or with someone. What must be true of that person for you to open up 
transparently and honestly with your sin to that person. Right? That, that person has to be trustworthy, safe for you to open up and be vulnerable, to be transparent, to be honest with your sin. In other words, that person's character will draw out honest confession or transparent and vulnerable confession. So it, is, so it is with God the Father. God's character leads you to honest, transparent, and vulnerable confession. In fact, Romans chapter 2 says God's kindness leads you to repentance. That's his character that fuels both conviction and confession of sin. Transparency and vulnerability, those are different. Both are needed, but they're different. Transparency confesses behavior. Vulnerability confesses motivation. In other words, transparency confesses what you did. Vulnerability confesses why you did it. Someone can confess they drank way too much in the bar on Friday night. That's transparency. Vulnerability is that person confessing they drank way too much at the bar on Friday night and confessing why they drank too much. Right? It's transparency and vulnerability. So God's character fuels confession. Well, what about his character fuels confession of sin? Well, look at the aspects of his character in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. That speaks of God's love, divine love, the love of a father. God's unfailing, unconditional love. We have said to our children many times, in the midst of their sin, their disobedience, or moment of weakness, we have said, we love you. And there is nothing you can do to change our love for you. There's nothing you can do. There's no sin you can commit. There's no uh, act of stupidity. There's nothing you can do that's going to change our love for you. And what that does is creates a very safe place between parent and child. And that child realizes, wow, mom and dad's love for me is constant. There's nothing I can do that would cause them to not love me. So now I can confess my weakness and my sin that's eaten me up on the inside with mom and dad, knowing that I'm safe, that I'll be loved. And it fuels honest and transparent confession. And so it is with God. His love, his unfailing love, fuels honest, transparent, vulnerable confession to him knowing that he will never stop loving you. Never stop loving you. Look at the next aspect of God's character in verse 8. We are the clay, and you are our potter. This speaks to God's sovereignty, right? his rights over the clay. Romans 9, 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for dishonorable use. 
God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely in control. And this actually gives an amazing degree of assurance when it comes to confessing honestly, transparently, vulnerably your sin to him. Because one of the things we struggle with when it comes to sin, especially sin in our past, is we fall into the if-only game. If only I wouldn't have done that, my life would be very different now. If only I wouldn't have acted so stupidly, my life would be in a different trajectory now. It's an if-only game. If only, if only. And God's sovereignty absolutely silences that kind of conversation. Because God is the potter, we are the clay. And that means that God is not the author of sin, but he uses your sin as a tool to shape you into the person he has designed you and is designing you to be. Not the author of sin, but he uses your sin. And so when you realize that, that he's sovereign over even your sin, your past decisions, then you quit asking the only question. You can break God's revealed will, and by revealed will I mean what he, the commandments he gives in his scriptures. You can break God's revealed will. You and I do it every day, hourly, minute by minute. But you cannot break God's sovereign will. You see the distinction there? You can break God's revealed will. You cannot break his sovereign will. And when you understand that, you stop asking the only questions. Because you realize God is sovereign over your life, shaping you into who he is calling you to be, into the image of Christ. All right, last aspect of God's character in verse 8. We are all the work of your hand. This speaks to God's care. That he doesn't abandon you. Luke chapter 12, verses 6 to 7, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God doesn't abandon you to your sin. God will never say, you got yourself into this mess, now get yourself out. Or there's this, uh, it's not biblical, but it's said, it just kind of floats around in circles, right? God helps those who help themselves. That's just, that's not true. It's not biblical. God doesn't abandon you. He doesn't forget you. In fact, the context of Israel's story here in Isaiah 64 is a beautiful picture. I mean, they have sinned deliberately, boldly. They've offended God. And in their rebellion, God sends them into exile in Babylon. But then he graciously brings them back. He rebuilds Jerusalem. It's this story of horrendous sin. An amazing love. That God's love as Father, His sovereignty as the potter, His care, all comes together in the story of Israel. 
to say to Israel, I have never abandoned you and I never will. And that's what he says to you. It's so important to confess God's character, the truth about his character, in the midst of your sin and your weakness and your chaos. Because so often we feel something different about God. And that's why confession of his character is so important. It's confessing what's true about God, not what I feel about God alone. But what's true of him, his love, his sovereignty, his care. When God seems silent and your life seems like chaos, pure chaos, what do you need from God? Let me ask that one more time. When God seems silent, when he seems distant, and your life feels like pure chaos, what do you need from God in that moment? I think a lot of us would say, somewhat naturally, I need God to act. But I need his action. What I would argue is that what you need more than his action is his character. Because if God acts and it doesn't measure up to your expectations, of what you wanted him to do, then you will begin to question and doubt his character. You need God's character so that you can rest in his action whether it measures up to your expectation or not. You need his character more than you need his action. And so right now, where you're at, maybe in your place of chaos or your place of sin, are you confessing God's character, his love, his sovereignty, and his care? In the midst of your sin, in the midst of your chaos, what brings revival when God seems silent? Confession of sin, confession of God's character, and finally, confession of faith. Look at verses 1 to 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. Two images here. Fire kindling brushwood and fire causing water to boil. Two images two different messages or distinct messages. One image is an image of destruction, of fire destroying brushwood. The other image is an image of transformation, of fire turning water into vapor, causing it to boil. What Isaiah is calling for here is to God, for God to come down and to reveal himself, to make himself known in all of his destructive and transforming power as he had done in the past. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. This is Isaiah looking back into Israel's history. 
when God came down on the Mount Sinai to meet Moses. And it says that when God came down to Mount Sinai, that there was thunder, there was lightning, there was smoke, the mountain shook. And Isaiah is saying, God, we need you to come down again. We need you to come down again. Rend the heavens. 700 years or so later, God would do just that. When Jesus was born into this world, there were no earthquakes. Mountains didn't shake. But when Jesus hung on the cross, and when he breathed his last, it says the earth shook. The mountains quaked. God did come down in the person of Jesus. And, and there's another clue in this passage that assures us that Jesus is the answer to ring the heavens. Verse 1. And the clue is, in Isaiah 63, verse 15, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Isaiah is saying your compassion, the stirring of your inward parts, held back from me. That means a, a very um, deep movement of the insides or the in, inwards. That's what Isaiah is speaking of there. Fast forward to Jesus' earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion means a deeply felt inward feeling. So 700 years earlier, Isaiah is calling for the heavens to be remnant, for God to come down, for the stirring of his inward parts to be revealed, to be made known. And that exact language is used to describe Jesus. That God did come down. He rendered the heavens. And Jesus came. And those two images of fire destroying brushwood, image of destruction, and fire transforming water into vapor, boiling, those two images describe exactly how God revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came down and destroyed sin, death, and the work of the devil. And Jesus transformed you. And he transformed me. And he's transforming this world. So the question is, how do you respond? How do you respond to God rending the heavens in Jesus? Verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. Here it is. Who acts for those who wait for him. Those who wait for him. That word wait means a confident and expectant faith. It says that God acts for those who exercise a confident and expectant faith. One of the reasons that I believe we come to the place of believing that God is silent or feeling as though God is silent 
is we have, a, we have a misunderstanding of how God acts. This says God acts for those who have an expectant faith. But I, I believe we misunderstand how God acts. The primary way that God has acted in human history is by rending the heavens and coming down in Jesus, living, dying, and raising from the dead. Now, how does God act today in light of his primary act of rending the heavens and coming down and doing that work? Well, Jesus explains in John 16, verses 13 to 14. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. That's Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The primary way that God acts in your life today is through the Holy Spirit, he makes Jesus Christ a bright living reality that begins to transform your character, give you inner poise, humility, confidence, contentment in the midst of your sin and chaos. God acts by making Jesus real to you, more real than the person sitting next to you. And so one of the reasons I think that we, we feel as though God is silent is because we believe that the primary way that he acts is to fix the problem that we're in or to fix the dilemma that we're in. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But we miss the primary way that God acts in our life. And that is to make Jesus Christ a living, bright reality, more real than the person sitting next to you, more real than the person you can touch, more real than the darkness that you face. In fact, Moses experienced this. Listen to Moses' faith journey described in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to this. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to him for the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Moses could see the anger of the king. He could touch the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Jesus was more real to Moses than what he could put his hand in. Dr. Gardner Taylor was a pastor in New York City for many years. He tells the story of preaching in Louisiana during the Depression. And during the Depression, electricity was just starting to make its way to, to that part of the country where he was preaching. And so he was preaching in a room that had one light bulb hanging from the ceiling to light up the sanctuary. And he starts preaching. And in the middle of his sermon, the electricity goes out. And the room goes pitch black. So Dr. Taylor stumbled around. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do. He was, he was a very young preacher, caught off guard. And so he's stumbling around trying to figure out, what do I do? The room is pitch black right now. And this elderly deacon 
sitting in the back room, says, Preacher, preach on. We can still see Jesus in the dark. Sometimes that's when we see him best. He becomes more real than the person you can touch. And he becomes more real than the darkness that you're facing. When God seems silent, it's not that he's abandoned. He hasn't restrained himself. He hasn't held himself back. When God seems silent, maybe, maybe, is that you've held back by honestly and transparently and vulnerably confessing your sin. Maybe you've lost sight of God's character, His love, His sovereignty, His care. And maybe you've forgotten the primary way that God has, which is not to necessarily fix your problem or fix your dilemma, but to make Jesus Christ a living, bright reality through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that Christ becomes more real to you. Let's pray. Father, we confess that there are often times that we feel as though you are silent, that you have held back, that you have removed yourself. And we can be honest about those feelings. And Father, the, the cry of our heart in those moments is we just want revival. We want our souls revived. Father, would you remind us of your character? Would your character, your love that never fails, your sovereignty and control of all things, your care for us, would that fuel and lead us to confess openly and honestly and transparently and vulnerably, not only with you but with each other, Father, we plead in the middle of our chaos, in the middle of our darkness, in the middle of our situation, in the middle of our circumstance, that we would trust you to act as you have promised, and that is by your Holy Spirit, to make Jesus real to us, more real than what we can touch, what we can see with our physical eye. That in that, Father, you would bring revival to our souls, that you would bring joy right in the midst of that chaos or that darkness. Father, as we sing now, we're going to sing songs that one day that we will sing in the new heavens, the new earth, in the physical presence of your son Jesus. We'll see him face to face. And right now there's a veil that separates us, at least from our physical view of Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, we are one with your Son, Jesus. And we pray now as we sing that we would sing in that reality, in that truth. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.